2: Now here's your host, Mike Carlin.
1: Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Craig Johnson. Craig is the New York Times best-selling author of The Longmire Mysteries, the basis for the hit Netflix original series, Longmire. He's the recipient of the Western Writers of America Spur Award for Fiction and the Mountain and Plains Independent Booksellers Association's Reading the West Book Award for Fiction. He lives in Ucross, Wyoming, population 26, and joins me today on Uncorking Your Story to talk about his career and latest book, The Longmire Defense. Welcome to Uncorking Your Story, Craig. Wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Craig, I'm happy to have you here. I love the hat. and uh Thank Thank I have to all ask, the rage here in Wyoming. You know? <laughs> I'm sure. Where does, uh, where does your story as an author begin? Where does my story as an author begin? Like that boy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess, you know, the, the thing is, I came
0: from a, a family of storytellers um, and very rapidly at a, at a very young age came to the conclusion that I was the worst storyteller in my family like that. And I thought, you know what? Maybe, maybe if I try a different, you know, angle of, of attack on this, maybe it would be better like that. And so I started thinking about trying to write like that. But, you know, of course, the difficulty with trying to be a writer is that it's like trying to be an astronaut. I mean, the odds against you are so great that you're just better off not telling anybody about it. And then maybe if it happens, it'll appear like it was a miracle overnight success, that type of thing like that. And so, you know, I got an education like that now some of it in writing. Um, but I mean, you really have to find something to write about, you know, something you feel strongly enough, you know, that you can, you know, get on that horse and ride, you know, for the better part of a year or you know, at least, you know, for any kind of a novel. And, um, I don't know. I mean, I guess at that point in time, I guess it was like, you know, a little over 20 years ago, um, everything in crime fiction was very noir oriented. It was all very urban, gritty, you know, alcoholic divorce detectives burying bodies in their backyards and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, you know, I don't know. I don't know a lot of people in law enforcement, but I know some and, and they are not like that, you know, and I thought maybe if you go in a different direction like it. And I thought, well, what if you did the sheriff, of the least populated county in the least populated state in America, that would certainly be something different than, you know, what everybody seems to be doing nowadays. And uh, that, lo and behold, was how Walt Longmeyer, the sheriff of Absaroka County, was born. There you go. Did, where did you grow up? A little bit of everywhere. like that. I, had, I was born in West Virginia or like that, but I had family scattered all through Kansas and uh, New Mexico and up in Montana and everywhere. And so I was always kind of headed west. Um, under all occasions like that. And, uh, you know, my grandfather had built his place and my father had built his place. And so I knew I wanted to build my place like that. And so where I'm speaking to you from is, uh, is actually the ranch that I built myself like that, because, uh, in my family, you were pretty much slave labor until you ran away and went to college like that. And so I, I learned how to do, you know, basic carpentry like that, you know, masonry and plumbing and electricity and all of that. And, uh, my father's statement about that was, is, you know, you may not ever use this stuff, but at least if you have to hire somebody to do it, you'll at least know what they're doing and what you're paying for. And, uh, and so that was probably, I don't know, two things like that. It slowed me down and kept me from getting started as a writer because I built the ranch, you know, myself like that. And then went out and my wife had a, you know, a store she wanted to start up in a little town called Sheridan, about 30 miles away. And it was an old opera house and I went in and tore it all out and redid it so she could get her store going like that. So it may have slowed me down a little bit from getting my writing career going. But then again, I also many times say that it was one of the best things that could have ever possibly happened because it uh, it, it taught me some patience. You know, it kind of taught me that, you know, most things that are worth doing may not, you know, pan out in a long weekend. It may take a little bit more work than that and a little more time than that. And uh, And I think that, you know, when you're going to try and accomplish something like a long form novel or. Certainly a series of novels, which I, I wasn't sure that I was going to write a series, but that's how it turned out. Like
1: Then you need to have a little bit of patience like and and, and take your time and try and do it right. So does the, the adage, you know, from Carpentry, measure twice, cut once, apply to writing? <laughs> Absolutely. And then, you know, even better than that, the Wyoming version is drink another beer,
0: cut a little straighter. So <laughs> always... The different versions to that like that, but no, I, I, you know, I, I think, uh, absolutely like I think, you know, I'm a big one for, um, I mean, there, you know, they, I've heard it said numerous times before, like uh, there are two different kinds of writers. There are those who do the outlines, you know, and then there are those who just like kind of fly by the seat of their pants. Um, I, it, it would worry me greatly to try and write a novel without a good, strong sense of outline and what the message was that I was trying to get across and a cast of characters and all those type of things. I like to have all that work, you know, kind of down, you know, before I sit down and start writing. That doesn't mean that I will, you know, escape from that. You no, know, it doesn't mean that that, you know, that, that, uh, you know, that 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 uh, that outline that I have is, you know, completely inflexible. I mean, I think you have to be open to the improvisational aspects of being a writer too and realize that it's not just a goal of a location, you know, or an ending, like it's also, you know, the trip itself. Like at the voyage itself, you'll learn an awful lot about that novel while you're writing it. And if you're going to ignore, you know, what you're going to learn by writing that novel, you've kind of missed
1: out on the whole thing. It's kind of like going on a trip and staring at the odometer the whole time. <laughs> right. Well, that's part of the fun of writing is, is you getting yourself immersed in the story, enjoying the story, uncovering the story. And I think that comes through for readers as well. Like if, if you're having fun while you're writing it, and if you're following your own curiosity as you're writing it, they're going to do that, the same thing as they're reading it. I hope so. I mean, you hope that that's the case like that, which is, you know, the big thing. I mean, you know, you really need to
0: come with the whole package, you know, whenever it is that you're putting a novel out there and thinking about those readers and what it is. that. Number one, I'm always telling students whenever I'm doing workshops, you know, like, well, what's your message? What are you trying to say, you know, with this, you know, and so many novelists start off, you know, especially young ones that where they don't have a plan. They really don't have an idea of what the message is like, which is okay, I guess. I mean, if you're going to search for that message while you're trying to write the book. That's fine, like that, but you know, boy, that's really kind of taking some chances of going down some dead end roads, you know that that may not do what it is that you want them to do, and so I'm always like thinking to myself, you know, it, it's more analogies, like that saying, you know, it'd be like if you and I, you know, were jumping my truck out here and say, okay, we're going to take off, we're going to drive to Baltimore, but we're not going to take a map. I would look at you and I would say, hey. Um, we don't have to look at it, but let's go ahead and just throw a map in the glove box there, just so we got it in case something happens along the way there.
1: <laughs> so did you debut your writing career with a Longmire novel or did you have something else first? No, no. Long, uh, the first Longmire novel, Cold Dish was uh the very first novel that I wrote.
0: And uh I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a story of, uh, of rejuvenation. You know, I think, you know, we're, You know, we've got this character, Walt Longmire, he's a little different from a lot of the protagonists that you see in crime fiction in the sense that, you know, he's, you know, his wife's, you know, passed away about five years ago like that. And he's kind of like kind of wallowing like that in this sadness, you know, that he's built for himself and wondering, you know, if he's doing what it is that he should be doing for a living. And, you know, is he really making any difference in the world? I mean, these are all like universal questions that I think a lot of us start asking ourselves, you know, at a certain age. Um, you know, you you get to a certain point where you might become a little bit world weary, um, and then that that for me is when a character becomes interesting, when it become a little bit introspective, and uh, you know, with Walt, like that, it became a voice. I mean, that's the other thing I think that was just so essential, um, to the process. You know, and one of the things, one of the main reasons why I think the book, the first book, and and subsequently the entire series, and even the television show that got made. Um, from the books, look at, um, a lot of it came from having a, a unique voice, a different way of telling a story. Um, and the way I, I always explain that is, is my wife is sitting across the kitchen table here from me. And, and the most feared words, you know, are when she's reading her, me reading my work back to me, which I always tell all students, have somebody else read your work back to you because you'll hear every mistake that you can make. Um, you know, and, uh, the most feared words or phrase that we have around the ranch here is, is there another way to say this? Um, and what that boils down to, the example I always use is, is the red hot gun barrel swung around under the looming mountains. You know, well, the gun barrel is always red hot. The mountains are always looming. Like, And so I always tell students, if you write something and it sounds like something that you've read before, guess what? You have throw it out, do something different. You know, that's not your job, you know, to put people asleep. When they're reading your stuff, you want them staying up until two or three o'clock in the morning reading your stuff because it's got the synapse in their brains firing like that and the imagination and the imagery all working for them. like that. And so it's a constant battle to not become a lazy writer, I think, but it's, it's, it's truly worthwhile if you, can, if you can get there.
1: So what have you learned about yourself over there, you know, from that first book, you know, that first publication all the way through, I guess this is number 19 right now. Do you walk away from this experience? Any big life lessons, you know, about about yourself? Oh,
0: about myself. God, everything. I mean, you know, there's no way that
1: you can start off,
0: you know, on a a voyage of that type and not have some kind of introspection log about who exactly you are and what you do and how you do it. I think that that's part of a, a lot of it like that. But then again, it's also, you know, discovering, you know, what kind of an effect that type of thing can have on your life. And I can't imagine a life without writing now. I really can't. I mean, I did a lot of different things. I was, I was, you know, I did a lot of different jobs in a lot of different places, lived a lot of different places, doing a lot of different things. But to go back to any of that, you know, and give up writing, I don't think that I could do it. I mean, it would literally, I think, spiritually kill me um, to have to give that up, you know, and I don't know if I suspected, you know, that it would be that powerful whenever it was that I started. But, you know, anything that you do, you know, like eight hours a day, you know, six days a week and cheat on Sundays like that has got to be something that's pretty compelling, you know, in your life like that. And, uh, you know, if it's not going to be compelling to me to write the
1: books, I wouldn't think that it would be compelling for anybody to read. Them. So the two kind of go hand in hand. Well, what can you share with us about the Longmire Defense?
0: Um, well, I mean, it's always a challenge you know, whenever you're writing a series of books, whenever uh, I still remember Catherine Court, the president of Penguin USA, um, sitting me aside after they had purchased the cold dish and saying, we really like these characters. We really like this place. We think that you should consider you know, possibly doing this as a series. And that's when I, with the knowledge of not even having had one book published, started arguing with the president of Penguin USA and going, yeah, I don't think that's a really good idea. I don't think that'll work. But, you know, i got some other ideas I want to bounce off of you and see what you say. And her response to me was, why don't you go back to your ranch in Wyoming and sit down and think about this? And, uh, and I came back, like, and one of the things that you know, my wife said to me, she said, do you remember what it was like when you finished that book? And I said, no, what? Like, and she goes, you were in the throes of like, the most devastating um, depression I've ever seen you in in my life. And I started thinking back about it, and she was right. You know, I mean, it was like a mass death. You know, I had all of these characters in this world that I had created, you know, and spent so much time, you know, trying to put together to make a novel with like that. And, uh, and then suddenly they were gone. And so then to sit back and think, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe this is something I could continue doing. And so I kind of made a deal with the devil. I kind of made a deal with Viking penguin and said, okay, look, here's the deal. I'll do four of these. Okay. I'll do four of these novels. Um, and basically what I did was I I had a buddy of mine by the name, you might know the name, fellow by the name of Tony Hillerman. And uh, I d- had dinner with Tony and I asked him about it. And I said, how do you do this, Tony? I mean, he was like on his like, I don't know, 15th or 16th book when I was discussing it with him. And he said, well, you know, it, you know, it just sounds like a bad sports analogy. You got to play them up one at a time is what you got to do. He said, but also it kind of helps if you can find some kind of a framework to give yourself, you know, a different kind of environment for each book so that each book is not exactly the same every single time. I mean, some readers may want that. But they don't really want that, like that, because you know become repetitious and formulaic, and so you have to be able to find a way to make those things different. And so one of the things I decided was, what if I did what I what I refer to as the Vivaldi um, pull a Vivaldi like that? And what that is is it it Walt you know, through four seasons, and so it takes me you know four books. You know it's like the it's like the four seasons. Like it, it takes me four books to get through one literary year for Walt Longmire. And there were a couple of benefits to that. First of all, it gave me completely different environs for each book, because July in Wyoming is nothing like January in Wyoming. So it's a completely different environment every time. The other thing it did was, is it kind of slowed the aging process for my protagonist, Walt Longmire, who's a Vietnam veteran. And so 20 years ago, I started writing these books. Well, now I'm 20 years older, but Walt, on the other hand, is only five years older than when we first met him. And so that's really kind of handy, actually, you know, when you're looking at the long-term arc you know, of a series of books like that. And, and as far as the Longmire defense is concerned, then it's a question of like trying to find different storylines, you know, and different plots um, and finding different ways to tell these stories. Well, a couple of different things you take into consideration. First is like, you know, okay, what time of year does this story happen? You know, I've had books that I've had to hold off for three years to write simply because it wasn't the right season for that book. Second of all, you know, what's the message of this book? What is it you're trying to get across? What kind of an effect is it going to have on these characters and developing them and evolving them? Because I'm a firm believer that if you have a series of books, that the lifeblood of a series of books is how you develop those characters and allow them to grow and evolve, just like all of us do every day. Um, if you don't, like, then you're going to get pretty static pretty quick. And I think that's a dangerous process. And so for this one, like for the Longmire Defense, you know, I did one of the things I really like doing, which is circling back around and finding either a relationship or an instance or something from Wallace's past that I can pull back out and utilize as, you know, a case for him to work with now. And uh, what happens, of course, is he's in the search and rescue and happens to be up in the Bighorn Mountains here, about 14,000 foot mountains right up here, you know, to the west of us. And um, he's uh, stopped in this one spot where he's trying to find this woman and looks around and realizes that he's been in this spot before and remembers that It was a conversation that he had with his father when he was very young. His father told him, have I ever told you about the first time I ever saw a man die? And he tells him the whole story about how that, you know, they'd been at an elk camp in the late 1940s. And this individual, Bill Sutherland, like who was the accountant for the state of Wyoming, um, was shot. And they don't know if it was on purpose or on accident because there was no one carrying the caliber of rifle that did the killing. And so it was kind of an open-ended cold case that never found any kind of resolution or anything. Well, as Walt's standing there, you know, and his dog is like digging around in the rocks and looks down and sees the dog. He says, get away from there before a marmot comes out and bites your nose off. The dog raises its head up and it's got a leather strap hanging out of its mouth. Well, it could be a piece of horse tag or it could be a rifle sling. And so Walt goes down underneath the rocks there, reaches his arm down and pulls out this Weatherby um, H&H, 300 H&H Magnum, which is the exact caliber that killed Bill Sutherland back in 1948. And I like to think of Walt as being a very even-handed and fair detective, you know, who's a firm believer in innocent until proven guilty, until he discovers that this rifle belonged to his grandfather, Lloyd Longmire. And uh, his relationship with his grandfather all the way through the books, as we've learned from the few excerpts that we've uh, had from his childhood, was not an easy one. The two didn't get along. And so for the first time, Walt's actually kind of rooting uh, for this person to actually have done this killing, like it, it's kind of a an interesting journey for him, like it, not only like professionally but also personally.
1: A few things I love about this story. First of all, the, the notion of a father and son with a conversation starting. Did I ever tell you about the first time I saw a man die? It is fantastic, and I it's taking me to you. like a Johnny Cash song. <laughs> <laughs> But, get that worked up for me, would you? Like, yeah, that's right. Card. Yeah, I'll I'll go to uh, ChatGBT and and have it write a uh, in the style of Johnny Cash. Um, but the other thing is, you know, just going back in time, you know, nineteen or so years when you're when you're talking to, um, you know, the the head of Penguin Random House, and you know, you're you're almost a first time author, right? They're they're trying to buy a book. They're offering you an annuity, basically. <laughs> To say, write, you know, a series of books. And you're like, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's, like, well, it's, it's a we little just don't bit. know. But we
1: don't know what we don't know at that time, well, right?
0: well, yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. Like, and the thing for me, of course, was, is like, yeah, I wrote one book. It didn't necessarily mean I could write another one, like, for goodness sake. Like, and ask anybody who's, you know, ever done it. I mean, generally, the response is usually, oh, boy, that second book. That's the one that's the hardest, you know, because, yeah. I mean, the cold dish, I worked on it for 10 years, you know. They weren't going to wait 10 years for book number two. They needed it in six months, you know, so, you know, that's a whole new breed of cat like that. And so, you know, you got to look at those kind of things and just think to yourself, OK, am I capable of doing that? And uh, fortunately, I was. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I, I talked to a lot of my like literary author friends, you know, who put like six, seven, eight, nine, ten years between books. And I'm always ready to grab them by the front of their lapels and shake them and say, what are you doing for nine years? Anyway, write the damn blank. Like, and so, yes. you know, but I mean, for me, it worked out really, really well like that because I, I you know, I'm, I'm a blue collar guy. Like, and I jump up first thing in the morning and I have a couple of you know, pots of coffee and I am off and running, you know, trying to get that book, you know, I, get it down on paper like that because, you know, those ideas are so fleeting like that, you know, and those, I, you know, those moments, you know, where you have those sparks. Where the book is all kind of falling into place and everything, I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. And so, thank goodness, I've got a book to do every year. Because if I could dawdle around and play with it, you know, for five, six years or something like that, I'd be out walking the streets of Viewcross, population twenty-six, and that's a grim prospect. I got to tell you. Uh,
1: well, how what is the secret? How do you go from taking ten years to write book one and then having six months for book two? I mean, you know, I, I'm sure you learn a lot. The learning curve is very steep, but. It's still a significant amount of time to cut down.
0: It is. Like, but I mean, also you have to look at it practically and say, somebody was finally willing to pay me, to, you know, to do it for goodness sake. Like because when you're writing that first book, man, that is the loneliest work in the world. Like you don't have an agent, you don't have a publisher, you don't have anything like that, and, you know, and you're just out there swimming in the ocean without a life preserver. You know, and at least, you know, when you get that first book contract, I think your confidence level goes, you know, way up like that because you realize you know, somebody's actually willing to take a chance on this, like a, to to a pretty incredible financial degree, you know, they're willing to take a chance on this. And so it gives you a little bit more confidence, I think, to jump in and uh, and, and try and write that second book. Okay. And then once again, whenever it's a series, it's not like you're exactly reinventing the wheel. I mean, you've got all of those characters, you know, that you get to bring back in that world that you bring back. And One piece of information that I held back here, I didn't tell you like that, which probably I should at this point. In the question was the first draft of the cold dish was about six hundred and fifty pages long. It was like War and Peace in Absaroka County was what it was like. And so you know, I thought the first thing the agent said to me, Gail Hockman of Brand Hockman Associates, you know, wonderful, wonderful woman like that. And uh, her first statement to me was, "You're going to have to cut about two hundred and fifty pages out of this thing, you know, before they're going to even consider um, publishing it." Like, and I was like, "Okay." You know, and she said, well, do you want me to go through? And I was like, nope, nope, I gave birth to it. I'll lop its arms and legs off. I'll be the one to, you know, try and see if I can, you know, get it underneath that, you know, that 400 page, you know, mark. And, uh, and it, it, it really made a big, big difference. It really made a big difference. Like, at, and, you know, making a more streamlined, you know, readable novel. I mean, I learned a lot, you know, cutting those 250 pages out of that first book. But that was 250 pages of material. You know, a lot of it backstories, a lot of it like scenes that you know really didn't have a place in this particular novel, but you know, possibly had the potential you know for future novels. And so, you know, the material was always there, like in the back of my head. You know, I mean, you know, it, it's not you know I don't think I'm giving away anything by saying that the majority of the characters that are in my books are you know based off of people I know. I mean, my favorite quote about writing is the one from Wallace Stegner on t- writing and teaching fiction, where he says the greatest piece of fiction ever written is the disclaimer at the beginning of every book that says nobody in this book is based off of anybody alive or dead. What a crock that is like, that because <laughs> that's your job to go find interesting people and populate your novels with them. And, uh, and that, you know, that kind of made the job a lot easier, but it also gave me wonderful backstories and relationships with all of those characters you know, to consider
1: going on, moving forward with those characters too. Yeah. Yeah. So what's it like, um, you know, having, you know, this series turned into something for the screen and how how involved, you know, are you or were you with that? You know, the only
0: way I can describe it is it's like uh, it's like coming down one morning to have breakfast and, and and on the kitchen table is a house plant and having it start talking to you in the first thing in the morning. Like it's really strange, really weird kind of disembodied, like, but kind of wonderful too. like that. And so, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. My my experience was actually pretty positive. I mean, you know, I talked to a lot of other authors who had had, uh, excuse me, like, that had had pieces done like that either in films or television series or those type of things. like that. And and they, you know, they had varying responses um, about it. Like that. And uh, most of them said, look, they're going to write you a check. And then that's it. You're never going to hear from them again. And you may recognize what you see on the screen, or you may not like that. And good luck with that, is basically what they told me. Um, we had some pretty amazing uh, producers and showrunners who really loved the books okay, and really kind of wanted to capture a lot of uh, what had been encapsulated in the book. Um, even if it was on a smaller scale, like with a 42 minute teleplay. I mean, one of the first meetings that I had with them, they said, Your books don't break down into a 42 page teleplay very easily and my response to that was well thank god you shouldn't be reading them if they did like that and so you know we had a really good working relationship with that and uh, even to the point where they actually sent me the auditions of the dvds for the actors that they were considering um and made me a creative consultant on the show and actually sent me the scripts they invited me to come down to los angeles and be in the writer's room and i thought what a hell why you know I, not not only for me like that but also, who is the last person that the TV writers are going to want in that room arguing with them about minutia, you know, about Absheroka County, for goodness sake? Like, you know, I mean, you know, this let them take the bits and pieces that they want from the books and then utilize them to do what it is that they do and, and, and do it the best that they can. Because, it, you know, TV and movies is like any other business, like ranching. Um, what do you do? You go out and you get the very best people that you can, and then you do the hardest thing in the world. Leave them alone. Let them do what it is that they do. That's why you hired them, for goodness sake. And uh, I have to admit that, you know, my experiences were pretty, pretty wonderful. I mean, the show ran, let's see, three years on A&E. Then A&E tried to buy it. Warner Brothers wouldn't sell it. It got picked up by Netflix, ran another three years. um, And then Netflix tried to buy it from Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers still wouldn't sell it. And I think that that sweetheart deal that they had, you know, was, you know, I think they thought, well, we've got this little cowboy Indian show, you know, it'll go for a couple of years and then we'll just cancel it and and stop producing it. Well, here we are six years later, and it's still one of the top ten to twenty shows on Netflix every other week, and so it seems to have some staying
1: power. The same as the novels, I hope. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and that is a unique experience. I, cause I do talk to so many writers, whether it's you know a movie, a you know, big screen adaptation or small screen. Um, they, they, they don't look at it as positively, but uh, um, but that's not your experience, so that that's great. Um, you know, one of the ways I like to get to know my guests a little bit more is through pop culture. Uh, so I'm I'm curious when when you were growing up, did, did you have any favorite things that you like to watch on TV? Wow, you know, I have to admit, you know that
0: they were probably westerns. I have to admit, like that. I mean, I really enjoyed you know things like the Rifleman, um, you know, Have Gun Will Travel, Wanted Dead or Alive, The Wild Wild West. You know, all of those like that were favorites. Like that, and uh, so I mean, I guess I was always kind of like western oriented like that. But then again, to me. You know, these were westerns that had like a little bit more of a psychological bent to them. One of my absolute favorites is the Westerner with Brian Keith, that was actually produced and written by Sam Peckinpah. Um, you know, and these were westerns that had just a little bit more psychological depth to them than the regular shoot 'em ups. Um, and you know, that's kind of what I was trying to accomplish, I guess. You know, with uh, with the Cold Dish, like with the Longmire books too. I mean, whenever I I, I do a lot of talks like it, and sometimes I'll be talking to the Western writers of America. And I'll be looking at all those people sitting out there, and the first thing I say to them is, "Hey guys, you know, let's not just copy Zane Grey and Louis L'Amour because Zane Grey and Louis L'Amour were pretty good at writing Zane Grey and Louis L'Amour, so maybe try and go in another direction to do something a little bit different like that." And so, you know, whenever the TV show started 12 years ago, and of course the books, you know, almost 20 years ago, there weren't that many contemporary westerns, you know, being done, and you know, to to take the modern, you know, epic, you know, romantic American West, you know, and then do it in the modern day um, was something I thought might be a little bit different and uh, might be a little bit more interesting than the usual stuff. It seemed like.
1: Yeah. My, uh, my father was a big fan of Westerns. Um, I remember uh, he's, he just turned 91 yesterday. Uh, uh, congratulations. Tell him I said hello. I sure will. Find know what his secret is. You know, <laughs> yeah. Apparently it's golf and Chardonnay. Wow. Okay. Uh, I got it. <laughs> Um, but I remember he, uh, he would take me and my twin brother to, uh, to Westerns, like the, the newer ones that would come out in like the eighties. Like I remember like Silverado was a big one, um, which actually is probably one of my favorite movies. Uh, I, I think that one's great. And what was the, the one that came out with, um, oh gosh, uh, Clint Eastwood is one of his last Westerns, uh, um, undefeated, undefeated, yeah, un- undefeated. Yeah. Undefeated? yeah. yeah sure. Something like that. Close to close to that. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, that was uh, those are great. Gene Hackman, I think, was in that one, too.
0: Oh, gosh, yes. And then um, the, the, then you can go back, look like, at the films like that that have been made also. Um, I mean, just last night I was watching Pocket Money, and, you know, with uh, Paul Newman like that. And, uh, you know, it's a great little, you know, Western, like, that. it's modern day like that that deals a lot, you know, with the, the contemporary American West, you know, and. You know, and and then you know, then just you know, it, it's always a question of trying to get a different angle, you know, on it. I think like okay, I mean, you know, everybody everybody loves to say, "Oh, the Western is dead." You know, the the Western's dead. That's the end of it. There are no more, you know, Westerns. There's no reason, you know, to do Westerns anymore. Like that. And uh, in all actuality, it, it's a it's a genre that lends itself, you know, to a broad aspect of storytelling, um, and the moral aspect of it is, you know, so strong. You know, as far as like good versus evil, what is good. What is evil? You know what's good, what's bad. All of these things, like that. and how do these things, you know, create a dramatic conflict within themselves, like that? Which I think is, you know, kind of essential. Like I think to the whole process of the writing. Yeah. How about music? What did you like to listen to growing up? Oh gosh, everything, everything. I'm a big jazz guy. In all actuality, I, right. I love jazz. I love the blues. Like, I, you know, but then again, you know, I also listen to country music. I also listen to rock and roll. Like that classical music. A little bit of everything. I mean. You know, I I understand that there are a lot of writers who don't listen to music when they work and uh, because they find it distracting like that. But I find it to be an extraordinarily emotive uh, medium. Um, One of the things I have happens is I've got a friend who's a member of the Motion Picture Academy and uh, they send them the soundtracks, you know, to all the movies like, well, I really don't see that many movies. And so she sends me all the soundtracks to the movies. And so I have this this catalog. Of all this incredibly emotive music, you know that I don't have any imagery to go along with, um, and it's kind of handy as far as like you know just popping some of those CDs in and just playing them and seeing what you can come up with.
1: Yeah, I like having classical music on in the background, um, something without lyrics, you know, to um, <laughs> to kind of stimulate you know my my brain. I think there there is like a little creative stimulation that happens when you've got music on, but but anything with lyrics, I'll get distracted with and. <laughs> I think you start singing along and nobody pays me to do that. I don't know about yeah. you. <laughs> oh no, God, they pay me to stop. Exactly. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite place where you like to write?
0: Oh yeah. Oh gosh. Yes. Like, I mean, you know, whenever you start out, you know, you, you always have, uh, you know, a, you, you kind of, you, know, you tend to be like a little, uh, a little precious, you know, as far as like, you know, where it is you work, you know, and I, I've got a desk up there in my loft, you know, with a stool that I sit on and, uh, a window that I look out of, you know, and all of my important things there, you know, with all my books and research books and all of that on the, on the desk, you know, and that's my favorite place to work like that. But what you discover kind of going back to one of your earlier questions there that like, you know, they, they don't take it. You don't, it may not take into consideration whenever you're writing that, okay, if you do get a book contract and you have this other book that you have to get done, okay, you've got a book tour. You've got to go out on, you've got like library events and literary festivals that you do all year long and if you're fortunate enough to get your books translated into other languages like that you may be fortunate enough that you've also got other countries that want you to come and do tours over there too like that and pretty soon you know your your time gets you know kind of you know kind of tight as far as that kind of thing is concerned and so that preciousness kind of goes away like that, you'll find yourself sitting in french train stations you know just riding away no problem at all like that or you know uh, you know in tucson like that you know waiting to go out you know and uh, and do the book festival like that as you're sitting in the hotel room like that. And you
1: will write just fine, by golly. <laughs> and then if uh, I, I like to call this the dear younger me question, you know, you, we start off, but you were talking about how, you know, you came from a family of storytellers and you may not have been the, uh, the most renowned storyteller when you were younger. Anyway, what would you if you could write a letter to your younger self, what would you tell them? Like, what kind of words of advice would you give your younger self about, you know, what your life is going to be like and about writing?
0: You know, I've been asked that question before, and the only thing that I can tell myself would be, "Calm down, you know. Calm down. It's all going to work out. It's all going to be okay. Um, You don't have to be quite so anxious, you know, about you know whether or not you're going to succeed or not. Just focus on the work, you know, and focus on the writing and all of that. Like, but then I think to myself, you know, what part of that raw energy that you have, you know, part of that you know dissatisfaction that you have that drives you so strong, you know, when you're young. You know, boy, that might be one of the main reasons why it is that you end up, you know, being where you are and doing what you're doing. And so maybe the advice that I would have for myself is not a damn thing. I wouldn't say it to myself. Let's say you're on your own. Take care of it
1: from here, would you? <laughs> that works. Yeah, because you may not you may not have gotten to where you were if uh, if you had some some guy come and say, you know, everything's going to be OK. Don't worry about exactly. it. Yeah, right. I'm sure you wouldn't mind if they gave you the winning lottery numbers, but that's uh,
0: well, yeah, that would be a
1: different story. Like then, I could have <laughs> also ended up digging ditches for a living or breaking horses. Like, I'm pretty happy with the way things turned out, so maybe I would just keep my mouth shut. There it is. Keep keep the trap shut, Craig Johnson. This has been a fun conversation. I imagine people can buy the Longmire defense wherever books are sold. It will be out on September 5th. It'll be at uh, it all fine book purveyors everywhere. I'm sure. Eh? And I'm sure some not fine book purveyors. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'll probably be visiting those. Like, I've got a tour coming up. It's about
0: 26 cities. Oh. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I know, like, you know it's kind of, you know, a lot of touring is like, you know, kind of falling into disfavor, not only with authors like that, but also with publishers. But thank goodness, you know, Viking Penguin, Random House, they're, they're still pushing me to get out there on the road like that. And uh, the wonderful thing is, is that we actually sell books when I'm out on the road. If I was to be out on the road and book sales would go down, then. You probably wouldn't see me so much anymore like that. But we've been extraordinarily fortunate
1: and uh, and looking forward to being out on the road again. Well, safe travels on that book tour. Uh, if you want to learn more about uh, Craig Johnson. Craig, do you have a website you can share with the audience? I do. It's at craigallenjohnson.com.
0: C-R-A-I-G-A-L-L-E-N-J-O-H-N-S-O-N.com. And the only reason my middle name is there is because there's a realtor in Minnesota that won't give up craigjohnson.com. So
1: craigallenjohnson.com. There it is. Well, I'll put that in our show notes, Craig, so everybody listening can just tap on that uh, and uh, look it up easy enough. Craig, thank you for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. My pleasure. Thanks for being here and thank you for letting me be here.
2: (laughs) Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.